Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The New Statesman. I'm Ida Vok, your correspondent in Berlin. I'm Emily Tamkin, senior editor US in Washington DC. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 20th of October. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Russia is targeting civilian infrastructure in Ukraine. War crimes targeted attacks on civilian infrastructure with the clear aim to cut off men, women, children of water, electricity and heating with the winter coming, these are acts of pure terror. We'll discuss that, the use of Iranian drones and whether this is the war Putin has been waiting to fight. We'll also discuss the upcoming US midterms. That's why in these midterm elections are so critical like more Democratic senators to the United States Senate and more Democrats to keep control of the House of Representatives. And folks, if we do that, here's the promise I make to you and the American people. The first bill that I will send to the Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade. And take a question on whether the EU is swinging back east. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right, Katie, Ido, the band is back together again. Before we begin, I just want to remind listeners that you can now submit your You Ask Us questions for the end of this episode, our little audience question part, at www.newstatesman.com slash you ask us. That's www.newstatesman.com slash you ask us. And now we have a lot to get through, so we're just going to jump right in. Russia is attacking civilian infrastructure, which the EU has deemed war crimes, and they're using missiles and drones. How is this changing the tenor of the war? Ido, do you want to start us off and talk about how significant it is that Russia is now targeting civilian infrastructure? When did we notice this switch take place, if, it, if indeed it was a switch and not more of an evolution, since we can remember that there's a theater struck in early days of the war? What is some of the context for this? It's actually nothing new that Russia is hitting um, civilian infrastructure. Last month, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, made a very moving speech in which he addressed Russia after it had hit power infrastructure, I think, in the Kharkiv region. And he said, without gas or without you? Without you. 
without light or without you, without you, cold, hunger, darkness, and thirst. For us, these are less frightening and less deadly than your friendship and brotherhood. So it's nothing new. And like Ukrainians have known for a while that Russia looked quite likely to be targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure and electricity grid ahead of the winter. It's a kind of, it's almost an echo of what they've been, what Russia has been trying to do with the EU in trying to break their unity by manipulating energy supplies, but obviously it's a, it's a lot more direct. But what we've seen in the past uh, eight or nine days is a an escalation of this tactic. So last week, as, as we spoke about, Russia targeted civilian infrastructure all over the country, including in the western centre of the country, so Lviv and Kiev, and these cities which had been quiet for months. And a particular novelty was that they were using Iranian-made kamikaze drones. These are called Shahid 136s. They're very, very cheap. They cost about $20,000, which is orders of magnitude less than uh, cruise missiles. And they're, they're relatively slow. They carry relatively low payloads, but they can be launched dozens at a time. And although uh, a lot of them are getting shot down, some of them are hitting their targets. And so Zelensky this week said that uh, a third of Ukraine's power plants were now out of action, which is really astonishing if you think about this latest strategy, which has only been going just over a week. So now at this point, the Ukrainians are asking how well they'll be able to weather uh, the the winter now, because obviously Ukrainian winters are, are very chilly. And if Russia continues this strategy, then things might get very tough over the winter. What did you make of the EU saying that these are war crimes? Do you think that will have any, I think I know the answer to this, but will that have any bearing on the war at all? I don't really think Russia cares very much about what the EU says its actions are. And I think that's been demonstrated time and time and time again over the course of this war. I think these are pretty clearly war crimes, targeting civilian infrastructure, trying to trigger a humanitarian crisis ahead of the winter by making Ukraine unlivable for Ukrainians is pretty clearly a a war crime. But no, I don't think Russia is going to be deterred by this. These are tactics that they've pioneered and that they've used before uh, Mm. in Syria and before that in Chechnya. And um, no, I don't think it'll change anything. Katie, we were speaking before this episode and you had suggested that maybe this was the war that we had been expecting to see at the start back in February. Can you explain that a little bit for for our listeners? Yeah, I think, I mean, Ido is right to point out that attacks on civilians have been a feature of this war from the opening days. So it's not a, it's not revolution, it's, it's evolution. It, it's, I think this is a real ramping up of the intensity, the geographical spread of those strikes, and now a really concerted effort to target the energy and the water infrastructure. So I think this is a, a strategy to inflict maximum misery on Ukraine to make the coming winter incredibly tough, to try to undermine morale, to try to undermine Zelensky, and to put an end to the kind of scenes that we saw immediately before these renewed strikes. I vividly remember watching a a video of people dancing in a square in, in central Lviv, and this kind of atmosphere of, you know, life in Ukraine goes on. The resistance is is strong. Normal life is continuing despite this war. I think this is an attempt to put an end 
to the idea that life can continue as normal. I think it's also, it needs to be understood in the context of the domestic criticism of the Russian war effort in Russia itself. I think this is part of what the more hardline elements there have been calling for in terms of of targeting population centers and in, in terms of what they would see as as answering Ukrainian gains on the ground, but it also does need to be seen in the in the broader context of U- Ukrainian forces are still making progress on the ground. These strikes, which are now targeting a you know wide swaths of the country, have not stopped Ukrainian forces from pushing towards Kherson, and we're seeing just in the last hours before we're recording this moves to start pulling, for instance, Russian-appointed officials back across the river in Kherson, away from the Western Bank and and back into Russian-controlled territory to the east, because they understand that Ukraine is pushing forwards and is and you know maybe within days of of a concerted offensive on on the regional capital of Kherson itself. So Ukraine is still pressing its offensive, or rather its counter-offensive, on the ground. Russian forces are still under extreme pressure and look very likely to lose more ground in the near term. The problem is the more those losses continue, I think that you know we are going to see, to the extent that they are able, Russian forces keep up and, and escalate these tactics to try to do everything they can, as I say, to, to, to slow, to undermine Ukrainian morale and to make this coming winter as difficult and as miserable as absolutely possible. So the follow-up then is the reality is that this isn't the start of the war and Putin at all are now doing this after months have gone by where things have gone quite miserably for them. And so it just seems that doing this now, whatever definition of victory you have, it it can't bring it about. It will only bring about more suffering. Yeah, but I th- I see this as Putin playing for time to an extent. I think a large part of his strategy has been to undermine support for Ukraine in the West and to wait for the real difficulties with the coming winter, the potential you know real issues around power shortages, around gas prices. I think a large part of his Strategy has been to to wait for those to kick in and to watch as that erodes support for Ukraine to hope that that undercuts the Western will to, to support Ukraine. There's no immediate indication that that is going to work, but I think is that that is part of his strategy is to make this as difficult as possible, threaten to widen the war, to target Europeans' comfortable lives beyond Ukraine's borders, to to really make sure that, that the West does not help more directly than it is doing currently to hasten the demise of that support. And I think, you know, in the much longer term, well, I, I guess it's a two, I think, time intervals to to look at and one which we can we can use to segue into our, into our next discussion perhaps about the midterm elections. But we've seen in the last 24 hours, Kevin McCarthy, who would be the new Speaker of the House if the Republicans gain control, start to talk about this idea that there can't be a blank check for Ukraine. So I think if we do see a political transition here in the US, I don't think we will immediately see a change in policy, but you can see how those types of ideas and those types of calls um, could could gather momentum. And then in the in the longer term, as we get towards 2024, 
here, I think this will be a real live issue. And if it does look like, for instance, Donald Trump is, is running again and has a serious chance, Putin would have serious reasons to doubt whether US support for Ukraine will continue at the level it has done. So I think he is playing for time. He is trying to inflict suffering and he's hoping that these strategies work. But in the, in the immediate term, you know, Ukraine is pushing forward. This, this only incentivizes Ukraine to push as hard as it can to take back as much ground as it, as it can and to show that it's not going to be cowed by this. That is a wonderful point at which to transition to our next segment. So I'm going to take it. All right, our next section. The U.S. midterms are just weeks away. And despite the Republicans' extreme Senate candidates, polls are close. So for those of you who blissfully are unaware, the midterms happen, as it suggests, in the middle of a president's term. Traditionally, the party in power loses the midterm elections. And so this time last year, it looked like this was going to be horrible for Democrats. The fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned and the fact that Biden had a much better summer than he did spring led some to suggest that perhaps it would not be all that bad. And now that we're close, polls are, of course, tightening. The reference to Republican extreme Senate candidates. I wrote a piece on this that we will put in the show notes a while ago, a little while ago. And for that piece, I interviewed a professor, a political scientist named Wendy Schiller, who made the point that even if the candidates are bad, that doesn't mean that that candidate won't win. The candidate who wins is the candidate who gets more of the people to leave their homes and vote for them. So if more people are motivated to vote for Republicans, that means it doesn't matter if that candidate is Herschel Walker in Georgia, who has been accused of domestic violence, who it was reported by the Daily Beast, paid for an abortion for one of the women who had one of his children. You know, it doesn't matter that J.D. Vance said that he hated Trump and now says that he loves Trump. J.D. Vance is in Ohio. The Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania is a doctor from a daytime talk show who's not, as his opponent has pointed out, has long lived in Jersey. You know, none of this is really relevant. What's relevant is whether Republicans will go and vote for them. I think what we can expect, I I mean, maybe I'll regret saying this. I think Republicans will take the House and I think Democrats will manage maybe to squeak by and keep the Senate, although I don't think they'll be expanding their majority. So all of these things where they're saying, just give us two more senators and we'll abolish the filibuster and we'll we'll pass abortion rights for all at the federal level and we'll do this, we'll do that. I, I don't think that's going to happen, and which means that, and this wouldn't even be the worst case scenario, but it means the Democrats would barely have a majority in the Senate and won't have the House anymore, which means that Biden's second two years would be less productive, shall we say, than his first two. Katie, I wanted to know, you know, you have this unique perspective in that you cover not the United States and you're not from the United States, but you live here and live in the greater Washington area and thus are attuned to what's going on in in domestic politics. What has this midterm campaign looked like to you? So I think what really is striking to me is how unsurprising it is, the issues that this seems to be coming back down to. We've seen in, in the last few days a real concerted effort by Joe Biden to reanimate the idea that that abortion is on the is on the ballot that this is an election that will determine abortion rights and and access to abortion across America which is true if he were to be able to follow through on what he's now saying which is that if he has the legislative ability to to do so if he has the numbers available to him that he will act to to codify abortion rights but that 
does not seem, certainly the polls that I've seen in the last few days, that does not seem to be the issue that people are voting for, as has been the case for for decades now. The, the number one issue people say there is important to them is the economy, is rising inflation. So I think it's totally understandable, um, the, the effort to elevate these very important issues and to make it clear that this is a chance for Americans to vote on them. But I think what is ultimately going to matter is which party is seen to be serious about the economy and which party people see as working best for their individual lives and their individual concerns. I think as, as we've seen over the past few months, actually some real legislative victories for the Democrats and Biden take meaningful action. And I think certainly as we've seen Putin ramp up his nuclear threats and, and the situation become ever more serious in Ukraine, there is a very strong argument to be made for why it is important that a sensible, careful leader is in the White House. And you can, you know, he has a track record that he can, that he can point to now. I am just somewhat pessimistic as to whether that is going to come through for him at the ballot box. I mean, to your point about abortion, I think if it does matter, it will end up mattering with suburban women. And particularly, I mean, based on everything that everyone has ever written about this, perhaps moderate slash conservative leaning women who broke from Trump in 2020 because everything was completely, I mean, <laughs> completely off the wall. And who would have gone back to the Republican Party, but perhaps are thinking, well, what they want to put in place is much more extreme than what I'm comfortable with. And so I'm going to just fine, I'll, I'll stick with Democrats for now. Those aren't unimportant voters. I don't know that enough of them will have that front of mind when they go to the polls. The other thing that I just wanted to mention before we move on is that a lot of these candidates deny the 2020 election results. And many American voters do recognize that our democracy is on the brink but not as many American voters say they're going to vote accordingly, which is interesting to me because if we're not a democracy anymore, your future votes don't matter as much. Now, I do I do get it. You can't just vote for the sake of getting to continue to keep casting votes. I can't. There has to be a stronger message. But it is, as an American, deeply concerning to me. I mean, to me, if you don't respect the fact that we are a democracy, that, that should be disqualifying. Just to put it very plainly, that is not disqualifying at all for many Americans right now. We will put the piece that I mentioned in the show notes and maybe some other midterm pieces, you lucky listeners. Emily, I was just going to ask one quick follow-up, which was the extent to which you think they, like, the respective leaders or would-be leaders are an important factor in this campaign. Like, to what I think the latest approval ratings for Joe Biden are still around 40%, and Donald Trump's various legal issues are, are very much in the headlines every, every day here. So to what extent do you think either of those men are either boosting or dragging down their respective parties' prospects in this election? It's a good question. I think I'm always, I mean, it is about, it is about that. It's also about the potential congressional leadership. For some people, yes, it's just about voting for a candidate who Trump supports. But it's also for some people saying, okay, I'm just going to vote for a Republican. I don't care who it is. I'm going to get Mitch McConnell that vote so that he can be Senate majority leader and he can do what we what he will in that position. You know, in DC, we have these ads. I don't mean to pick on Democrat Abigail Spamberger, but, and it's actually not picking on her. Her opponents run these ads that are like, she votes with Nancy Pelosi all of the time. She says she's for you. She's not. She's for Nancy Pelosi. And so basically the message is like, let's take Pelosi's power away. 
I have to say, if you don't live in the United States, that was really a spot on political ad impression. It really is. So it's about local issues. It's about statewide issues. And it is about the head of the party or the head, like the potential presidents. But it's also about who is going to be in charge in Congress. And these are very polarizing figures, as my political ad rendition suggests. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We are going to move on now to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. Okay. Our question this week comes to us from Clara. Is power in the EU swinging more eastward nowadays after Eastern Bloc countries have been vindicated in their wariness of Russia? Ido, we'll go over to you. Well, so this framing comes from Olaf Scholz, who gave a speech in Prague in which he suggested that the 
center of gravity at the EU might move eastwards. Uh, and this was for two primary reasons. The first was that, as you said, the eastern member states, the eastern bloc doesn't exist anymore. The eastern member states consistently pushed for a more hawkish line on Russia than some of the western bigger member states, such as Germany. And clearly, uh, the views of Eastern member states such as Poland or Estonia or Latvia on Russia proved more prescient than, for example, Germany's attitude to Russia before the war. And the second was that Scholz viewed, said that the EU would eventually expand and really the only reason, the only direction for it to expand is eastwards. So eventually in an expanded, in an expanded EU, you get um, Moldova, Ukraine, the countries of the Western Balkans, maybe Georgia. And um, that would mean that the center of gravity of the EU would shift eastwards. And, and actually this framing, I think, has been taken up by other people. So for example, Joseph Burrell gave a, Joseph Burrell, who is the uh, EU's foreign policy chief, gave a pretty blistering speech to EU ambassadors in which he castigated the pre-war status quo. He said that um, it had been kind of based on importing cheap energy from Russia and depending on the US for, for their security both of which he said was not a long-term uh, sustainable position. And and he said the Americans were telling us they will attack and, and the Europeans weren't believing them. I mean, we say the Europeans, but really it was maybe the, the, the establishment in Brussels, the bigger member states, France, Germany, the Eastern member states were much more willing to, to believe the Americans because of their history, because of their, their kind of more antagonistic, less accommodating attitude to Russia. So yeah, I think the, the question is is spot on. So I think Clara's question is spot on. The Eastern member states clearly have more credibility inside the EU. The attitude that they have to Russia is clearly going to hold more sway in the EU from, from this moment forward, because the arguments that uh, the EU need to find some kind of accommodation and Russia's always going to be here and we need to we need to trade with Russia for you know train chains through trade all these kind of arguments have been severely discredited and the countries which never really uh, subscribe to them are going to come out of this with a lot more credibility well thank you to all of you who sent in your questions listeners you can send yours in at newstatesbid.com slash you ask us or by tweeting at us. Oh, and before I turn things over to Ido to, to get us out of here, I do want to remind that my pop-up podcast, Nationalism Reimagined, is out now. It's in your podcast feed if you're already a subscriber to this or wherever you get your podcasts. As the title suggests, we are looking at what it would mean to reimagine nationalism such that it's not exclusive and based on ethnicity or religion or race. First episode t- takes a more sort of theoretical approach, and that's out now. Our next episode will be out Tuesday, and that will be on Hungary again, wherever you get your podcasts, Nationalism Reimagined. Now, back to Ido. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with Fatima Shams on protests in Iran. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a good review. It really does help. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.